DW Living Planet. Welcome to the show. I'm Kathleen Schuster. Coming up, people across the U.S. are feeling the effects of climate change. And my husband laughs and says, you know, our grandchildren will not inherit our house because it may not be there. We'll hear about the solutions that people are working on to make their communities more resilient. We have been sequestering about 250 tons of carbon dioxide annually. It's a real blessing to be able to do that for our community at a time like this when climate change is so dramatic. You're listening to Living Planet. I'm your host, Kathleen Schuster. On this week's show, we're taking an in-depth listen to climate change solutions from across the U.S., from wine growers to aviation experts. Like many countries across the world, the U.S. has seen extreme weather happen more and more frequently on an unprecedented scale. And as of early December 2023, 25 of those climate disasters had already cost the country upwards of $1 billion each. That's according to NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The Biden administration announced in November it was putting $6 billion toward climate action as part of the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. But it also warned Americans not to become complacent because the climate crisis is now affecting every sector and every region. But there are already a number of companies and private groups who are anything but complacent, and they've been working to find sustainable solutions fast. Reporter Claudio Zara has this feature. It's presented by Ben Ressler. At a small vineyard in the U.S. state of Maryland, about 40 kilometers from Washington, a few sheep are grazing peacefully in the sunshine. Several hundred meters on, rows and rows of vines grow side by side. The grapes have already been harvested, and the leaves are turning yellow. So this is the vineyards at Doden. Um, And it is part of my family's farm. Uh, We first purchased the property in 1725, so I am the eighth generation. There are four generations of our family that live here now. My wife and I started this operation about 15 years ago. That's Tom Krogan, a scientist-turned-winemaker based in Davidsonville, Maryland. The 69-year-old is visibly proud of his vineyard. His ancestors cultivated tobacco on this land back in the 18th and 19th centuries. Then, from the 1960s onwards, they switched to corn, soy and grain. Today, this land is used to grow wine. Doden Winery is one of about 100 vineyards in Maryland. But it's not like most. That's because Tom Krogan makes eco-friendly, carbon-neutral wine. Krogan's vineyard is an oasis of grasses, wildflowers and herbs crawling with insects and microbes on top and inside of the soil, keeping it nourished and healthy. The sheep act as natural mowers and fertilizers. Our goal is to become a completely self-regulating ecosystem. If it wasn't mating season, the sheep would now be grazing on grasses and weeds between the vines. Their droppings play a key role in fertilizing the soil, making them an important part of the ecosystem. And the sheep will nibble down all these grasses, they will clean up the area a little bit, and more importantly, they will develop decomposing fungi in their rumen, and they will poop it out. The wine grower has reduced his use of insecticides by 70% and the use of fungicides by 30%. That helps keep the soil healthy, and that means even better tasting wines, says Krogan. 
Solar panels installed around the farm generate green energy, and any emissions produced, such as from the petrol fuel tractor, are offset through carbon sequestration. It's all part of how he manages to produce carbon-neutral wine. We have been sequestering about 250 tons of carbon dioxide annually. That is the equivalent of about 30,000 gallons of gasoline. Emit the the carbon dioxide emissions from 30,000 gallons of gasoline, which we're really happy about. And it's a it's a real blessing to be able to be able to do that for our community at a time like this when climate change is so dramatic and has the potential for such devastating consequences. The state of Maryland sits on the Atlantic coast, and rainstorms are becoming more and more frequent. This year, we had five episodes. We call them rain bombs, where we had two inches or more of rain in 30 minutes or less. That's a huge amount of rain coming. Visitors to the vineyard welcome its climate-conscious approach, says managing director Regina McCarthy, who says that they'll soon switch to reusable bottles. Yes, we find that we have some guests who seek us out because of our farming practices. We also have guests who are looking for a fun vineyard to visit on the weekend and are completely surprised when they hear about our approach, and always pleasantly surprised. There's no doubt the U.S. public is increasingly aware of the need to make big changes to protect the climate. A Pew Research Center survey found that three quarters of Americans support U.S. participation in global efforts to combat climate change. And a majority want the government to prioritize developing renewable energy sources. There are countless initiatives and companies across the U.S. working hard to bring down greenhouse gas emissions, develop new eco-friendly technologies, and campaign for a cleaner environment. That's because the effects of climate change are increasingly impossible to ignore. 2023 was the hottest year on record since weather records began. Across the U.S. and beyond, severe forest fires, floods, storms, and heat waves are becoming more and more frequent and severe. And it could be even worse for Americans. The latest U.S. National Climate Assessment found that the country is heating up 60% faster than the world as a whole. And still, the U.S. is the largest greenhouse gas emitter in the world after China. About a quarter of these emissions result from burning fossil fuels like coal, oil, and gas to generate power. Around 28% comes from the transport sector, petrol-powered cars, and of course, aviation. That's why a Vermont-based startup is working to revolutionize the way we fly. Beta Technologies, headquartered right beside Burlington Airport, has spent the past six years developing electric aircraft that don't run on fossil fuels. We started uh, in 2017 to help bend the curve of climate change down, and we looked at we're passionate aviators, and so we looked at how do we actually have the biggest impact as quickly as we can. From his office, Deputy CEO Newton can see into the nearby hangar. Two electric airplanes are parked there. Their curved windows and tapered narrow wings make them look like something out of a science fiction film. One day, these Alia 250 electric aircraft will be mass-produced in a brand new factory. This aircraft down here, the Alia 250, is designed as a platform、uh, to allow for a lot of different mission sets. 
pretty big, right? It's it's not what people think of necessarily. It's a big 50-foot wingspan, big um, uh, volumetric bay. It's designed for cargo, military logistics, medical logistics initially, which is where we think we can have that big impact. His company's clients include the U.S. Air Force, logistics company UPS, United Therapeutics, and a biotechnology company shuttling organs between hospitals. It costs far less to recharge the Alaya 250's battery than to fill up an airplane with fuel. And it doesn't even need an airport to take off and land, says Newton. By creating these new distributed networks, leveraging the power of uh, vertical takeoff and landing away from airports, you unlock all these new network opportunities that otherwise were, were never available. Luckily, there is a flight simulator to bring Newton's descriptions to life. The Alaya 250 takes off vertically, like a helicopter, thanks to propellers located on its wings. Once at cruising altitude, the propellers are switched off and the quiet electric jet engine is turned on. It's so quiet. It's incredibly quiet. The, uh, you get instant torque, so the aircraft just kind of pops off the ground. Um, and the visibility is incredible. I mean, look at the, look at the, the window pane there. It's, you know, you can see all, all across the sky, which is, which is really beautiful to see and really adds to the experience of flying. The biggest challenge for this type of aircraft remains effective range, just as it remains a challenge for electric cars. Although the industry is working hard to innovate. The Alaya 250 managed to fly some 600 kilometers on a single battery charge in trials. The long-term plan, however, is for it to cover shorter distances. For that, however, a network of recharging stations is needed, says Newton, which is what Beta Technologies is also working on, so that one by one, they can be installed at airports. There's technical challenges to be sure. You know, battery energy density still has a long way to go. It's nowhere near jet fuel. You... you, you um, overcome a lot of that with the efficiency gained in electric propulsion. You know, you say it's it sounds simple. Electric motors really are simple compared to internal combustion, uh, and, and they generate a lot of efficiency. Energy density of batteries is improving, you know, doubling every seven or eight, ten years or so. So we'll see that start to improve, and we're already st- seeing massive improvements there. And then the, re- the regulatory frameworks are, are, are challenging as well. The company aims to produce some 300 climate-friendly planes every year by 2027, once it's up to full production capacity. The aircraft will be able to shuttle up to six passengers across short distances. So it looks like some of the most polluting sectors still have quite a way to go before they can drastically reduce their emissions. That's why others are busy making sure that important carbon-capturing ecosystems remain intact such as grasslands or prairies as they're known in the U.S., which store around one-third of the world's carbon. Like other carbon sink ecosystems, grasslands are hugely important in regulating temperature, boosting air quality and storing carbon emissions. Montana is home to a vast flat prairie, stretching out like an ocean. Here, you'll find no trees or even shrubs, Just thousands of square kilometers of open space covered in yellow-green grass. Today, two-thirds of the country's prairies have vanished because humans settled here or turned it into farmland. The American Prairie Foundation wants to protect as much of Montana's grassland as possible. It has used donations to buy up or lease some 100,000 hectares of prairie in the state's northeast.
Protecting these grasslands is essential in the struggle to fight global warming, says climate scientist Kathy Whitlock of Montana State University. You know, more than half of Montana is grassland. People think of mountains and glaciers, but, you know, over, over 50% is grassland. And, of course, the grasslands themselves are our precious natural ecosystem that we're trying to protect. Grasslands are incredibly important, and grasslands are a major carbon sink, um, as much as forests, by some estimates. Um, and so keeping grasslands healthy and as a carbon storage unit is really important. That's why it's important to protect the area's biodiversity and maintain its ecological balance. Only healthy grasslands can absorb harmful greenhouse gases. The American Prairie Foundation has now started releasing bison into these areas. This herd has grown to over 800 bison, says Scott Heidebrink. Almost every day, the 37-year-old drives out into the prairie with his pickup truck to check on the animals. They're home here. This is where bison live. This is where they belong. This is where they historically would have been. And I feel as though if we're going to have a fully intact ecosystem where people can come actually see what some semblance of what was here 100 or 150 to 200 years ago, bison are a significant part of that. Without them on the landscape, it is not going to be an in intact, e functioning ecosystem. At the beginning of the 20th century, bisons were on the brink of extinction, but populations have since recovered. Over the past thousands of years, these animals have adapted to Montana's warm summers and cold winters, and they play a vital role in the grassland ecosystem. The interactions are unlimited. There's so many. Um, everything from the snot that comes out of their nose to them, uh, the feces that hits the ground, to them uh, urinating on the ground, uh, just their hair that they shed every spring. Um, like this cow that's walking past us right now, she looks like she was just tearing up a shrub. It's stuck in her, in her right horn. Bisons roll around in the dirt. Their hooves loosen up the soil. And that makes it easier for local plants to flourish. Not everyone in Montana has welcomed the idea of bringing back the bison. Cattle breeders in particular oppose the move. They fear that bisons will spread diseases such as bovine brucellosis, and they worry that they'll have less land for cattle to graze on. One such critic is cattle farmer Newell Roach. So they're changing the culture in the communities that they have purchased their land, you know, displaced the ranching culture, displaced the economy of those ranching cultures, in order to recreate a fantasy. Montana is a conservative Republican state. Its government promotes coal mining and the extraction of oil and gas. Cattle breeding and meat processing are big industries too, none of which are very climate friendly. This is Washington, D.C.'s Anacostia neighborhood, home to the Anacostia River, which was heavily polluted in the 1970s. 
but after a successful campaign from residents, the river was cleaned up. Residents like 91-year-old Howard Gassaway. Now it's safe to swim in that Gas River. And um, the fish is not jumping up out of the water trying to get oxygen nowadays. <laughs> so, so that tells you something. Howard Gassaway has taken a seat at the Seafarers Yacht Club right by the river. Founded in 1956, it's the oldest African-American yacht club in the U.S. Gassaway is hard of hearing, and his wife Janet is always by his side. She remembers the time when the Anacostia was known as D.C.'s Forgotten River. Back then, it was one of the ten dirtiest rivers in the U.S. At the Anacostia was dirty, stinky, trashy, you know, nasty, all kinds of little things about it. So when he was given the opportunity through Marion to get support from the city, we really worked on it immediately. The 1980s river cleanup was a tremendous amount of work, says Janet. There was so much garbage in the water and along the embankment that almost the whole city had to help with the cleanup. To this day, people come together once a year to collect and remove garbage along the Anacosta River. We had refrigerators. We couldn't believe the stuff that would come up from the lower end. And they would um, have people to dump stuff, I guess, along the way. And, of course, when the rain comes, it washed right into the water. And it would float be in the bottom end of the Anacostia with us, you know, with the low tides. We had all kinds of things. And even two cars with, unfortunately, dead bodies. Howard Gassaway and the Seafarers Yacht Club, which played a huge role in the cleanup, are supported by environmental organizations like the Anacostia Watershed Society. It's based in Bladensburg, a small Maryland town right by the river. 60-year-old Chris Williamson heads the organization. He takes a stroll down to the river as he talks about the successful cleanup. It's been dramatically improved since then. The two major pollutants, I should say categories of pollutants, were pollutants from sewage and pollutants from... Uh, chemical pollutants from, you know, industrial concerns, like there was a munitions factory along the river, there was a cement plant, there was a gasification plant, there were several other manufacturing concerns. Removing pollutants from the river is expensive, says Williamson. But the ecosystem is recovering. Fish, waterfowl, beavers and even bald eagles are returning. And there's more good news. The city of Washington modernized its outdated sewage system. Now, untreated sewage no longer seeps into the river during storms. The city improved the system after the Watershed Society and other groups took legal action. The river is also important to surrounding communities as a place to fish, relax or cool off, says Williamson. Urban rivers are becoming increasingly important as a response to climate change. A lot of cities are starting to look at their rivers in terms of how can we take advantage of this river to help people in dramatic heat events, for example? Can we create safe, clean, accessible swimming areas where folks can come and get some relief um, from the tremendous heat effects that climate change are going to bring? Oh, cool. Okay. Oh, cool. All right, sir. How you doing? Mm-hmm. 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 91-year-old Yacht Club chairman Howard Gassaway is pleased with the cleanup. He says it's come a long way. He often takes his boat out onto the river. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, everybody asked me. I, yeah, I was out for the 4th of July, and uh, so we're doing education now. That's, that's what I'm all about now, you know, making the water safe. 
he always goes boating on the 4th of July. Though he says the biggest issue is drawing attention to the problem of pollution. The effects of the climate crisis, meanwhile, will also impact the river. Scientists predict the river's water level will rise dramatically due to sea level rise caused by climate change. The effects of melting polar ice caps are already evident today in the state of Delaware, some 300 kilometers east of Washington. Sea level rise is posing a major threat to the state's 600-kilometer coastline. Towns like Bowers Beach are often flooded during storms, and beaches are eroding. The only thing left for people to do is to adapt and fight coastal erosion. For example, with the help of coconut fiber mats. But wherever the, the wooden stakes are along the shoreline, that's where quar logs were placed and tied down. The coconut fiber mats protect marshland coast from eroding, says Quinn Witzel, who works for the American Littoral Society. It promotes marine habitat and coastal protection. But the mats must be replaced at regular intervals because the organic matter gradually disintegrates. The 2,000-square-kilometer Delaware Bay is very vulnerable to the impact of climate change. Heavy storms are eroding the region's extensive salt marshes. A delicate ecosystem, says Quinn Winsel's boss, Shane Goodshaw. Um, this whole beach used to have houses running down the land, right? And so it was all cleaned out. And, you know, all, the, all the old housing was removed. The pilings and the old septic systems were, really weren't even septic. They were like cesspools. They weren't even really septic systems. Cleaned up the shoreline and created a new beach for horseshoe crabs and, and shorebirds. So uh, it's a really neat project. The American Littoral Society is eager to protect the horseshoe crab's habitat, a species that's over 400,000 years old and only found in Delaware Bay. But storms are increasingly threatening this delicate ecosystem, which is home to the horseshoe crab as well as many other animal and plant species. And seaside settlements are threatened too. We catch the ferry to Lewis, Delaware. where many homes are at risk of flooding. Today, researchers are talking to the residents of the small town of Millsboro about the dangers of climate change. Yeah, Delaware has the lowest mean land elevation in the United States, so we're very low-lying. And on top of that, we have a rate of sea level rise that is twice the global average. So we are, our tides are getting higher, and that's causing more inundation on our low-lying roads and properties. So we do have quite a lot of flood risk in Delaware. That's Danielle Swallow of the Delaware Sea Grant Research Group. She is warning locals that sea levels will rise by at least 30 centimeters by 2030. Storm surges will push Atlantic water inland, but also cause streets and properties to flood as rivers swell up. Most residents, however, know of these dangers and do not want to move away. Like 67-year-old Jennifer De Bernardis, she and her husband own a house in Sussex County, only a few kilometers from the sea. And my husband laughs and says, you know, our grandchildren will not inherit our house because it may not be there. Danielle Swallow finds this attitude concerning. She says anyone who insists on staying in the area should talk to local authorities about how to adapt to these dangers. 
I think for Delawareans to become more resilient to sea level rise and climate change, first it takes the way we design our infrastructure so that we're building smarter and higher and further back from the coast. Adapting and becoming more resilient to an increasingly extreme challenging climate is key, say scientists. And so is bringing down emissions, phasing out fossil fuels and protecting biodiverse ecosystems. It requires all hands on deck. That's why many Americans are trying to make a difference to help reduce pollution, emissions, biodiversity loss, coastal erosion and waste. They know they can't sit back and rely on the US government alone because a new US government could be voted into office and chart a far less sustainable course with far-reaching consequences for us all. Ben Ressler with that feature from Claudia Zare. You're listening to Living Planet with me, Kathleen Schuster. Time for a quick message from DW. I'm Andreas Becker. I'm Nicholas Martin. Imagine if someone promised to double your money within a year by investing in medical cannabis. Would you believe it? This is the story of the biggest cannabis scam ever. This is the story of Juicy Fields. And the scam might just go on. I've lost 20k. I had 350,000 euros in the account. I lost a lot of money myself. But even worse is that I encouraged my own son to invest in Juicy Fields. Juicy Fields. These scammers, they had brought in psychologists. They had brought in people who are professionally human behavior. This is a story about greed. If you invest 20k, you'll have 90k in just five years. I think people are surprised that we're offering a good investment. Money, money, green, you know, like everybody likes money. And it's the story of an industry in a gold rush. Canada is venturing where no industrialized nation has gone before. By legalizing marijuana. And as coalition talks progress here in Germany, there's one thing the three parties hoping to govern together do agree on. Legalizing cannabis. There's a lot of fake consultants. There's a lot of people that say we got this, we got that. And they don't have anything. This is Cannabis Cowboys. A story about big dreams, juicy money and never-ending hype. Brought to you by DW. In this investigative podcast series, we take you to where the cannabis cowboys worked and schemed. This is where Juicy Fields started. We're standing there a week after the scam exploded. Since then, everybody is kind of like running around like headless chickens. We share our doubts. The equivalent would be roughly 280 billion U.S. dollars going in and going out again. Wow. wow. Maybe this is the Juicy Fields account? Yeah. Maybe it's not. Maybe. But we have to find out more about this address. And we take you into a world that we didn't expect to enter when we started this investigation. It bears all the trademarks for Russian mafia, and they know exactly how this is done. 
It's a fantasy. People want that the Russian is the very best. Stop fantasy. Kommt einem auch irgendwie so irreal. It just feels surreal, like you're in a gangster movie. So what exactly happened? Who's behind all this? How is it possible that the scam might just go on? That's what this podcast series is all about. We have owners that sometimes like to be flashy, hence why they like cannabis and crypto. One more shout out to Juicy Fields, check them out on Juicy Fields. Cannabis Cowboys. A story about big dreams, juicy money and never-ending hype. Brought to you by DW. Find Cannabis Cowboys wherever you get your podcasts. Don't drink the milk. Don't drink the milk. Don't drink the milk. No, this isn't a podcast about milk. If you like historical intrigue, a bit of culture and a sprinkling of controversy, this one's for you. I'm Rachel Stewart and I'm traveling around Europe, following the hidden history of everyday things as they're exported through time and around the world, by force, by chance or by choice. No need to pack your bags. Just subscribe to Don't Drink the Milk wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode of Living Planet was produced by me, Kathleen Schuster. Our sound engineer was Gad Georgi. You can listen back to this and past episodes of the show on our website, dw.com. We're also on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kathleen Schuster. That's it for Living Planet. Be sure to listen in next week for more great stories from around the world. Living Planet is produced by DW in Bonn, Germany. <laughs>